Aerospace Dimensions Module 6, Spacecraft, Module Outline. In this module, you will learn about Chapter 1, Unmanned Spacecraft, Chapter 2, Manned Spacecraft, Chapter 3, Living and Working in Space. Chapter 1, Unmanned Spacecraft, Learning Outcomes. 1. Define Satellite. 2. Describe an Orbit. 3. Define Apogee and Perigee. 4. Identify Sputnik. 5. Define a space probe. 6. Describe the related parts that make up a satellite system. 7. Describe the global positioning system. 8. Describe the X-37's potential uses. Important terms. Apogee, the highest point of an orbit of a natural or man-made satellite, or the highest point in the path of any projectile, G denotes Earth reference. Comsat, communication satellite, also the corporate identifier of the Communication Satellite Corporation. GNSS, Global Navigation Satellite Systems, one of the terms used for navigational satellites. GOES, Geostationary Operational Environmental Satellite. GPS, Global Positioning System, a navigational system operated and maintained by the U.S. Air Force and used by all areas of society throughout the world, also known as NAVSTAR. ITSO, International Telecommunications Satellite Organization, the world's largest commercial satellite communications provider, now called Intelsat. LANDSAT, program identifier and name for a NASA family of satellites that locates natural resources and monitors conditions on the Earth's surface. Landsat, program identifier and name for a NASA family of satellites that locates natural resources and monitors conditions on the Earth's surface. Orbit, generally, a regular, repeating path that one object in space takes around another, although there are some exceptions. Perigee, the lowest point of an orbit, G denotes Earth reference. Satellite, natural or artificial object in space that orbits another celestial body. Space probe, spacecraft that either fly by, orbit, or land on a celestial body, other than Earth. Sputnik. The first artificial satellite of the Earth, launched by the Soviet Union in 1957. Satellites. Origin. The word satellite comes from the French language meaning a guard or attendant. In 1611, the German astronomer Johannes Kepler applied the term to the moons of Jupiter, the guardians of the giant planet. In today's world, most of us realize the impact satellites have on our lives. We know that they affect our televisions and our telephones, and even help us in predicting the weather. They are a part of our daily lives. Today, astronomers still use the term satellite for natural objects in space. An example of a natural object in space is Earth's moon. In fact, the moon is Earth's only natural satellite. In 1957, the Soviet Union launched Sputnik, the first artificial, man-made, satellite. Since then, astronomers have used the term satellite for either a natural or an artificial object in space. We commonly call any object that orbits the Earth a satellite. Artificial satellites, as mentioned earlier, the Earth has only one natural satellite, but there are thousands of artificial satellites. Since 1957, about 40 countries have launched more than 24,000 artificial satellites. Today, there are only about 3,000 usable satellites orbiting Earth. There are approximately 5,000 to 6,000 other man-made objects still orbiting Earth, but they are unusable and considered space junk. 
because satellites normally only stay in orbit for 5 to 20 years. The rest of the 24,000 have fallen out of orbit and incinerated during re-entry into Earth's atmosphere. From October 1957 to April 1961, all satellites were unmanned. A satellite that has the ability to navigate is often called a spacecraft. A spacecraft can be either manned, carrying at least one crew member, or unmanned, carrying no crew members. There are far more unmanned spacecraft launched than manned spacecraft. Unmanned satellites and spacecraft perform a variety of missions, including communications, navigation, Earth observing, weather, and some even perform specialized military missions. In 1958, the first experimental communication satellite, COMSAT, SCORE, relayed messages sent from the ground back down to Earth receiving stations. It also had the capability to store messages for later retransmission. It operated for only 13 days, but its accomplishment gave our nation an important success in the early space race. In 1962, Telstar-1 became the first commercial satellite. It retransmitted as many as 60 two-way telephone conversations at one time. Today, the ComSat business is huge and growing. National and international corporations are financing the construction, launch, and operation of several types of ComSats, including direct television and video conferencing. The International Telecommunications Satellite Organization, ITSO, is the world's largest commercial satellite communications provider. Now called Intelsat, it manages a constellation of communications satellites to provide international broadcast services. In 1989, they launched a satellite that accommodated 15,000 two-way voice circuits and two television channels simultaneously. As of 2020, Intelsat consists of 50 satellites and provides services to more than 200 countries. Another ComSat is the Tracking and Data Relay Satellite System, TDRSS. The TDRSS consists of eight active satellites and provides continuous full-time coverage for the International Space Station and other NASA low-Earth orbiting spacecraft. This system relays data and communications between the satellites and Earth. NASA established a Deep Space Network, DSN, which consists of an international network of antennas that supports interplanetary missions and astronomy observations. There are three deep space communication facilities placed approximately 120 degrees apart at Goldstone, California, Madrid, Spain, and Canberra, Australia. This allows them to provide continuous communications for interplanetary spacecraft. Communication satellites provide reliable and timely communications information around the world. The communications payload consists of the electronics and controls that ensure all signals are received, amplified, and retransmitted error-free to the appropriate destination. Successful communication links require a direct line of sight with both the transmitting and receiving stations on Earth or other satellites. Communication today normally involves an intermediate ground station rather than a direct satellite link. By the late 1960s, navigational satellites came into existence. The first navigational satellite, Transit, was developed to provide Polaris missile submarines with the ability to fix accurate positions. Global Navigation Satellite Systems, GNSS, is the term now used for navigational satellites. GNSS allows receivers to determine location, latitude, longitude, and altitude to within a few meters and provides precise time as well as position. There are currently four GNS systems in operation, one each from the United States, Russia, China, and the European Union. Another category of satellites is the natural resources satellites. They locate natural resources and monitor other conditions on the Earth's surface. 
This is the task of the Landsat series of satellites. Some of the missions of Landsats are measure and record radiant energy, monitor agricultural conditions, aid urban planners in future development, and manage coastal resources. Another area where satellites have had a dramatic impact on our lives is in weather. Weather satellites has significantly upgraded the capability and accuracy of weather information. This in turn gives us timely information which we can use for making daily decisions. The pictures we see on television weather reports come from a weather satellite system known as GOES for Geostationary Operational Environmental Satellites. GOES gives us pictures of the Earth's surface, pictures of clouds, and information which helps with weather forecasting. NASA sent the first weather satellite, Tyros-1, into space on April 1, 1960. It sent back an image of a hurricane that same day. Weather satellites have come a long way since then. The weather satellites of today have tremendously added to the accuracy of weather forecasts. They provide the technology and information that have particularly helped with forecasting severe weather. Accurately predicting severe weather saves property and lives. Over the years, satellites have been used for obtaining scientific information in an effort to gain a better understanding of space. Here are a few of the most important satellites and their missions. Explorer was the first and is the oldest U.S. satellite series. Explorer 1 was launched in 1958. It discovered the Van Allen radiation belts. Later that year, Explorer 3 provided more information about radiation in space and investigated the presence of micro-meteoroids. In 1959, Explorer 6 transmitted the first photograph of Earth from space. One group of satellites, the Orbiting Solar Observatory, OSO, provided continuous solar observations for most of the 1960s and 1970s. The OSO series also furthered our studies of X-rays, gamma rays, and ultraviolet rays. Spacecraft that either fly by, orbit, or land on a celestial body, other than Earth, are called space probes. We've had several probes that we should briefly mention. The Rangers were the first probes to take close-up pictures of the Moon in preparation for the Apollo landings. The Mariner series flew by Venus, Mars, and Mercury and gave us pictures of the clouds of Venus and the cratered surfaces of Mars and Mercury. In the 1970s, the Pioneer probes gave us pictures of Jupiter and Saturn. In 1975, the Viking series explored the environment of Mars. The Vikings analyzed and photographed the surface of Mars with the primary emphasis on the search for life. In the late 1970s, Voyagers 1 and 2 encountered Jupiter and Saturn, with Voyager 2 continuing on to also visit Uranus and Neptune. The Voyagers provided greatly improved pictures and data of these four planets. Satellites as a system Satellites as a system refers to a satellite, or satellites, and the related support elements functioning as a system. These systems are made up of people, the space environment which is orbited, subsystems that support the spacecraft in space, an earthbound and a space, command and control system. And, finally, a launch vehicle to get the spacecraft to orbit. There are many people involved in the design, manufacture, launch, and operation of any satellite. Plus, this system also includes the customers. As users of the information, they define the overall purpose and requirements for the satellites. The space environment is something we can't control. It is extremely dangerous for both humans and satellites. For satellites, atmosphere is a concern because low-Earth-orbiting satellites must battle atmospheric drag. Radiation, charged particles, and solar flares are also potentially dangerous for satellites. Radiation is heat energy emitted from the sun that is both good and bad. 
The heat gives energy to the solar-powered satellites but can bring harm to the satellite's instrumentation over time. The same is true with charged particles and solar flares. Over time, these phenomena can harm the satellite's protective shields and damage electrical equipment. Micrometeoroids and space debris can also harm satellites. Some 20,000 tons of natural materials make it into the Earth's atmosphere every year. Most of it burns up, but some does hit the Earth. Man-made debris or junk is also a threat. It is estimated there are over a billion tiny pieces of junk, such as slivers of metal and paint chips in space. These conditions can be detrimental. For example, in 1983 a paint chip of 0.008 inches hit the Challenger orbiter and caused a crater 20 times its size, 0.16 inches, in one of the windows located in the crew module. With an impact speed of over 1,500 miles per hour, a paint chip has tremendous energy. Efforts are continuously underway to minimize the amount of debris each launch into space leaves behind. The SUMP systems refer to the support that is given to the spacecraft in space. These include the structure, the propulsion system, attitude control, the power system, thermal control, and a command and control system. The first aspect that ties the subsystems together is the satellite's mission. The mission defines the satellite's purpose, what services will be provided, why it is being built, and how it should be designed. The first step of the design is to determine the payload requirements. The payload refers to the vehicle prior to it being placed in orbit. Recall that the criteria for any object to be a satellite is that it must be in orbit. The structure of a satellite is like a building. It has a frame and windows, and it is insulated to help control the temperature. It must be sturdy enough to survive the launch, yet light enough to get into orbit. It supplies the support for the other subsystems. The propulsion system provides the boost to get the payload into orbit. It takes an enormous amount of power to get into the correct orbit. Some satellites are equipped with a post-boost propulsion system that allows them to perform additional maneuvers once in orbit. Additionally, to make minor corrections in orientation, the attitude control system is used. It steers and controls where the satellite is pointed. Obviously, electrical power is another important subsystem. Often, the main source of electricity while the satellite is in orbit is the sun. Sunlight is collected from the satellite's solar cells and converted to electricity to power the satellite. A satellite experiences extreme temperature differences while in orbit. There are times during a satellite's orbit when the Earth blocks the sun. When this happens, the temperature drops dramatically. Many measures can be used to control the temperature, but the most common are insulation and heaters. Both of these help keep the temperature within safe limits. This temperature data is all part of the thermal control subsystem. Moreover, solar cells can only function in sunlight, so satellites are equipped with batteries that provide power during times of darkness. The command and control function of a satellite is a communication system. The command portion is the signal from the ground station to the satellite. The commands sent to the satellite are in the form of computerized instructions. The satellite then sends a response back to the ground station. This is called telemetry, and this is the information that tells a controller how the satellite is functioning. A most important part of the system is the launch, which gets the payload into orbit. The mission requirements determine the orbit needed to accomplish the mission. To meet these requirements, a payload must be launched from a particular site at a particular time. There is a launch window in which this can occur, but it is usually a short period of time. There may be only one or two launch windows per day. Think of the term launch window as a window of opportunity during which a launch may take place.
Orbits and Trajectories An orbit is the movement or path a satellite takes around a celestial body. We commonly call any object that orbits the Earth a satellite. Studying the orbital motion of satellites helps us understand the capabilities and limitations of these satellites. Greek astronomer Ptolemy, lived AD 127 to 145, gave us the first theory of motion of celestial bodies. His theory, the geocentric theory, placed the Earth at the center of the universe. He was wrong, but it was the first organized concept of the motion of celestial bodies. Celestial bodies are planets, stars, comets, and any other non-man-made, large objects in space. In the early 1500s, Nicholas Copernicus developed a heliocentric theory of the universe. This theory placed the sun at the center, and all the rest of the universe revolved around it. Copernicus was not entirely correct, because the universe does not revolve around the sun as do the planets and other objects inside our solar system. However, at that particular point in history, the solar system was our universe, and he was exactly correct in placing the sun in the center and having the planets revolve around it. Our modern understanding of the universe did not come until the year 1925. These ancient astronomers determined that the motion of celestial bodies was not random. Kepler, from the start of this chapter, studied the motion and measured the movement of planets. In the 1600s, he created rules of motion which we call Kepler's laws. All celestial bodies, including artificial satellites, obey Kepler's laws. Kepler's first law states, the orbit of each planet is an ellipse, with the sun at the focus. In an elliptical orbit, the satellite's altitude and speed are not constant. The shape can range from being very elliptical to almost circular. During an orbit, the orbiting object reaches a high point and a low point. For an Earth-orbiting object, its highest point is called the apogee, and its lowest point is called its perigee. The terms apogee and perigee are typically reserved for Earth-referenced orbits. The G refers to geo, meaning Earth. For orbits around the Earth's moon, the terms apolloon and paraloon are used, the root word being lunar. For solar orbits, the terms would be aphelion and perihelion, the root word being helios, meaning sun. Several years after Kepler, Sir Isaac Newton developed his laws of motion. Newton's laws of motion are very helpful to understanding the movement of satellites. These laws are discussed in detail in Module 4, Rockets. However, Newton's first law of motion, called the law of inertia, helps to explain how a satellite stays in orbit and how it leaves in orbit. The first law states that an object at rest remains at rest and an object in motion remains in motion unless acted on by an unbalanced force. Another of Newton's laws, the law of universal gravitation, explains the gravitational attraction or pull between bodies in space. The Earth's gravitational force is always toward the center of the planet. The Earth's gravity is the dominant force affecting the motion of a satellite in an Earth orbit. Gravity gives the orbit its shape. An example of a bullet fired from a gun helps to explain this. As the bullet is traveling in a straight line, gravity pulls the bullet toward the center of the Earth. The combination of the bullet's speed and gravity creates a curved flight path, the spacecraft as a vehicle. To get a better understanding of spacecraft and spaceflight, one must first have a basic knowledge of the environment in which this craft will operate. From an altitude of approximately 62 miles above the surface of the Earth, the internationally accepted altitude at which space begins, space is extremely hostile. The pressure is near zero. One need not travel very far from the sun to experience extreme cold. The nighttime temperature on Mercury gets down to nearly minus 300 degrees Fahrenheit. 
If a spacecraft is going to operate in that kind of environment, without a pilot or crew, it will, for all purposes, be a robot. If the vehicle is robotic, then it will typically be controlled with a combination of sophisticated computer programming along with some additional help from a command center on Earth. The spacecraft can be scientific, technological, or military. To initiate a spacecraft mission, it must first be launched from one of many sites around the world. If the flight plan is designated as suborbital, the spacecraft will re-enter the atmosphere and return for a landing on the Earth's surface. Our first two astronauts, Alan Shepard and Vess Grissom, flew suborbital missions on their first trips into space. Additionally, the world-famous X-15 rocket plane made a number of suborbital spaceflights. The vast majority of space missions are Earth orbital, like the GPS satellites. Space missions extending beyond Earth orbit are either cislunar or interplanetary. The Apollo lunar missions were considered cislunar. All of the space probes that have been flown to the planets are classified as interplanetary, which is also considered deep space. Two space probes have actually left the solar system and are now in interstellar space, Voyagers 1 and 2. Three other space probes, Pioneers 10 and 11 and New Horizons, are still in the solar system but will reach interstellar space in the coming years. One example of deep space exploration recently was the flight to Mercury, which occurred in January of 2008. NASA's Messenger spacecraft gave scientists an entirely new look at a distant planet once thought to have characteristics similar to those found on our moon. After a journey of more than 2 billion miles and three and a half years, Messenger went into orbit around Mercury and provided scientists with a better understanding of our solar system. There is a phrase that states form follows function. This means that a form, living or inanimate, will have a certain shape if it is to function well in a given environment. A classic example is the shark. It is designed for high speed, high maneuverability, and very low hydrodynamic drag. Compare the shark to a fighter plane, such as the S-16. The aircraft is very sleek, has large control surfaces for maneuverability, and has low aerodynamic drag. Space, on the other hand, has only minute amounts of molecules, and the dynamic drag is very low. That is the reason most spacecraft are very unusual in shape. They can be disks, blocks, rectangular, cylindrical, etc. An example is the Helios spacecraft. It is capable of flying at thousands of miles per hour, yet its design is dictated by the fact that it will not encounter any detectable aerodynamic drag. Visual Description of the Helios Pro The central body is a 16-sided prism about 6 feet in diameter and 2 feet high. Most of the equipment and instrumentation is mounted in this central body. Masts, antennae, small telescopes, and two rigid booms carrying sensors and magnetometers emerge from the central body. Two conical solar panels extend above and below the central body, giving the assembly the appearance of a diabolo or spool of thread. A new spacecraft for research and development. In the late 1990s, NASA planned to develop a manned orbital spaceplane to complement the space shuttle. The X-37 project began as an unmanned technology demonstrator to develop such a vehicle. The goal was to develop a small reusable spaceplane to primarily carry crew members to the International Space Station, ISS. The space shuttle would then be used only for ISS assembly and large cargo deliveries. The space plane was viewed as a safer and less expensive way to transport crew members to and from the ISS. NASA abandoned the space plane development and, along with it, the X-37 due to shifting priorities as well as budgetary constraints. At the time of cancellation, 
the U.S. Air Force and the Defense Research Projects Agency, DARPA, expressed interest in continuing the X-37 program, and so it was transferred from NASA to those organizations. The program continued through the construction of two flight-capable vehicles, redesignated X-37B, which have now flown five successful long-duration missions, up to 779 days, with a sixth mission in operation at the time of this writing. The X-37 has now become American's military space plane that can be used for space-based surveillance, reconnaissance, and other classified military applications. On April 7, 2006, the X-37 made its first free-glide flight. During landing, an anomaly caused the vehicle to run off the runway and it sustained minor damage. Following an extended downtime while the vehicle was repaired, the program moved from the Mojave Desert, California, to Air Force Plant 42 in Palmdale, California, for the remainder of the atmospheric flight test program. Officially, the Air Force version is designated X-37B Orbital Test Vehicle, OTV. The X-37B was continued in development by the Air Force Rapid Capabilities Office and includes partnerships with NASA and the Air Force Research Laboratory. Boeing is the prime contractor for the OTV program. The first orbital flight of the XOTV-1 occurred on April 22, 2010 on an Atlas V rocket from Launch Complex 41 at Cape Canaveral Air Force Station in Florida. From Sputnik 1, which was launched on October 4, 1957, to the present, unmanned spaceflight continues to be an important element of space exploration and the defense of our nation. Whether it be for pure science or military superiority, the limit has been raised to include the final frontier of space. Aerospace education now involves the study of humanity's exploration of the unknown and the methods by which we as a species have endeavored to understand our universe and our place within it. It is hard to imagine what life will be like a thousand or even a hundred years from now, but almost daily what was science fiction is now becoming science fact. Chapter 2. Manned Spacecraft Learning Outcomes 1. Identify various manned spaceflight projects and their missions. 2. Identify the American and Russian Joint Manned Spacecraft Mission. 3. Describe the accomplishments of Alan Shepard and Neil Armstrong. 4. State specific facts about the Hubble Space Telescope. 5. Discuss the overall mission of the International Space Station. 6. Identify various space shuttle launches and their missions. 7. Describe China's effort in space. Important Terms Apollo U.S. manned spaceflight project that put American astronauts on the moon. Apollo-Soyuz, manned spaceflight project linking American and Soviet spacecraft in Earth orbit. Gemini, U.S. manned spaceflight project that helped develop the technology to land on the moon. Mercury, U.S. first manned spaceflight project. Skylab, U.S. manned spaceflight project that put a laboratory into space. Space Shuttle, U.S. Space Transportation System, SDS, developed with the goal of reducing spaceflight costs with reusable components. First in space, the Soviet Union's spaceflight programs developed along the same lines as the American programs and occurred around approximately the same times. However, the Soviets had several firsts in the space race. In 1957, the Soviets orbited the world's first artificial satellite, Sputnik, after that, the Soviets launched nine more Sputniks in about three and a half years. The last two were accomplished in preparation for their first manned spaceflight. The Soviets also put the first man in space, Major Yuri Gagarin, in April 1961. 
Although he only stayed up for one orbit, he described sights no human eyes had ever seen before. Then in June 1963, the Soviets put the first woman, Valentina Tereshkova, into space. She completed 48 orbits and was in space for three days before returning safely to Earth. In March 1965, Russian cosmonaut Alexei Leonov became the first person to walk in space. He spent 12 minutes outside of his spacecraft. This occurred about two months before the Americans were able to accomplish a similar feat. The Soviets launched their first space station, Salyut 1, in April 1971. The Soviets sent seven Salyuts into space to complete their space station missions. Salyut 7 fell back to Earth in 1991. The Soviets' next space station project was Mir, the Russian term for peace. Mir was launched in February 1986. Mir was scheduled to fall to Earth in 1999. However, the Russians boosted Mir so that it would stay in space longer. In 2001, as Mir's rocket boosters lowered its orbit, it burned up entering the Earth's atmosphere. Its remains ended up in the Pacific Ocean. This ended a 15-year 2.2 billion mile journey and an historic chapter of the Russian space program. Mir had somewhat of an interesting history. It was built in the Soviet Union and its first element was launched by the USSR in 1986. The USSR dissolved in 1991, at which time the newly formed Russian Federation took control of the program. Two of the cosmonauts on board went up as citizens of one country and came back as citizens of another. Russia would have continued to operate Mir for many more years were it not for an agreement with the United States to become a major partner in a new program known as the International Space Station, ISS. Both Mir and ISS are described in a later section of this book. Project Mercury The United States launched its first satellite in 1958, four months after the Soviet Union launched Sputnik, as pointed out repeatedly by the national and world press. However, in just over three short years, in 1961, it was ready to attempt manned spaceflight. America's first manned spaceflight program was called Project Mercury. Mercury's mission was to find out if a human could survive space travel and what, if any, effects would space travel have on the human body. Project Mercury flew six manned missions from May 1961 to May 1963. The first flight involved sending one astronaut into space. This first flight was suborbital and lasted for only 15 minutes. But on May 5, 1961, astronaut Alan Shepard became the first American in space. Project Mercury's third manned flight was also its first orbital flight. During this flight, astronaut John Glenn became the first American to orbit the Earth. He remained in orbit for four hours and 55 minutes, while orbiting the Earth three times. On the final Mercury flight, astronaut Gordon Cooper orbited the Earth 22 times and stayed in space for 34 hours and 20 minutes. Project Mercury accomplished its mission by proving human spaceflight was both feasible and possible, and by answering basic questions about survival in the space environment. Project Gemini Shortly after Alan Shepard made his historic flight, President John Kennedy announced that the United States would mount a fantastically ambitious project to send men to the moon. A lot of practical spaceflight experience would need to be gained before such a complex program could be undertaken. Enter Project Gemini there were a total of 10 Gemini flights between 1965 and 1966. Gemini was America's first two-man spacecraft, and, during one of the missions, astronaut Ed White achieved the first U.S. spacewalk. Additionally, Gemini allowed for the first rendezvous and docking of a manned spacecraft with another satellite. 
The Gemini flights gathered additional information about the effect of spaceflight on the human body. The astronauts studied the effects of weightlessness and were involved in an exercise program. At times, they removed their spacesuits and relaxed in shirt sleeves. Because most of the flights lasted for several days, the astronauts were able to establish routines for sleeping and eating. Enough information was gathered to convince scientists that astronauts could safely survive a 14-day round-trip flight to the moon. Gemini bridged the gap between Mercury and the Apollo program. Most importantly, were it not for Gemini, the Apollo program would have taken much longer to accomplish and in all likelihood would not have achieved President Kennedy's goal of landing on the moon before the end of the 1960s. Project Apollo After the Gemini missions were completed, Project Apollo took center stage in America's space program. From the early 1960s, it was known that Apollo's mission would be to put American astronauts on the moon. So the Apollo flights were conducted with that overall goal in mind. Two of the early Apollo flights traveled to the moon, orbited it, and returned to Earth. It was not until Apollo 11 that the lunar landing mission was accomplished. Apollo 11 landed on the moon, and on July 20, 1969, at 10.56 p.m. Easter Daylight Time, Neil Armstrong became the first man to walk on the moon. A few minutes later, Edwin Buzz Aldrin also stepped off the ladder of the lunar module and joined Armstrong on the moon. Many have called that landing the greatest scientific and engineering accomplishment in history. After Apollo 11, there were six more Apollo flights to the moon. Five of them resulted in successful moon landings. The only flight of the six that didn't land on the moon was Apollo 13, which had to be aborted due to an explosion in the aft equipment section of the spacecraft known as the service module. However, Apollo 13 did make a successful emergency landing back on Earth. In December 1972, Apollo 17 flew the final lunar landing mission of the program. Navy Captain Eugene Cernan has the distinction of being the last person to have walked on the moon. Project Skylab In the mid-1960s, NASA had very ambitious plans for continued lunar exploration after the initial landings were completed. It even had plans for a large space station to be placed in Earth orbit to continue the study of the effects of long-duration spaceflight on astronauts. All of these planned missions and projects were collectively known as the Apollo Applications Program, AAP. However, after the initial euphoria of landing on the moon wore off, the U.S. Congress was in no mood to invest many more billions of dollars in what many thought of as wasteful spending. The only part of the AAP to survive the budget cuts was Project Skylab, America's first Earth-orbiting space station. The first mission of the program was to launch the actual space station, as a single complete unit using the powerful Saturn V rocket. Skylab had about the same amount of room as a three-bedroom house. It also contained all of the food, water, and oxygen needed to support the entire mission. Three different crews spent time in the lab. The first crew manned Skylab for 28 days. The second crew spent 58 days aboard the laboratory. The final crew spent 84 days in space. The main lesson that came from Skylab was that people could live and work in space for at least three months with no ill effects. Project Apollo Soyuz After the Skylab flights, the last manned space launch before the space shuttle was the Apollo Soyuz test project. This occurred in July 1975 and involved a link-up in space of American and Soviet manned spacecraft. This was a unique moment in history. These two superpowers that had been involved in a well-publicized space race for 15 years met and shook hands in space. The two crews docked together and spent two days moving between two spacecraft, helping each other with scientific experiments.
The American crew was commanded by veteran Gemini and Apollo astronaut Tom Stafford. His fellow crewmates were space rookies, Deke Slayton, the only one of the original astronauts who did not get to fly a Mercury mission due to a medical condition that was cleared up years later, and Vance Brand who would later go on to command three space shuttle missions in the 1980s and 90s. Among the Soviet crew were Alexei Leonov, the first man to walk in space, and Valery Kubasov, who would be flying his first space mission. This joint venture truly was an historic event. Apollo-Soyuz marked the end of an era. It marked the end of the expendable spacecraft. A new era was being ushered in, the era of the reusable space vehicle, the space shuttle. Space shuttle. The United States Space Transportation System, STS, commonly known as the Space Shuttle Program, served as this country's primary launch vehicle for 30 years. This section will discuss the accomplishments and challenges experienced by the program as well as the reasons and motivations for developing it. The idea of a reusable spacecraft is a concept that was promoted by science fiction writers decades before it was even feasible to send humans into space. More importantly, it was also the focus of attention of rocket scientists who were beginning to understand that a reusable, winged space vehicle was possible. The motivation to actually develop one gained popularity during the space race, when congressional leaders and ordinary citizens began to understand and began to complain about the expense of throwing away a rocket after just one flight. Comparisons were made to the illogic of throwing away a car or airplane after using it just one time. That thought process helped transform an idea into reality. So in 1972, the U.S. Congress approved the initial funding to develop a reusable space transportation system for the United States. From 1976 until 1981, the U.S. didn't have any astronauts in space, but that changed with the space shuttle. In April 1981, the first space shuttle mission was launched. The space shuttle provided a system for transportation into space and a return back to Earth. This had been considered a major advantage of the shuttles since it can be used again and again. The space shuttle consisted of three main parts, the orbiter, the solid rocket boosters, and the external tank. The orbiter looks like an airplane and is about the same size as a DC-9 jet. The orbiter would carry the crew and the payload. The external tank, ET, actually contained two separate propellant tanks to feed liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen to the three main engines mounted on the orbiter, which was attached to the ET in a piggyback fashion. Two solid rocket boosters were also attached to the ET on either side. When the shuttle was first built, it could remain in space for no more than 10 days. Later in the program, an extended duration payload module was added on certain flights to permit missions lasting up to 17 days. In order to return to Earth, the astronauts would fire the two orbital maneuvering engines, which slowed down the vehicle, causing it to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere. The first orbiter constructed was the designated OV-101 Enterprise, but it was only used for atmospheric flight tests. It was not designed for going into space. The other five orbiters have all gone into space and have been used for a variety of missions. They were the Columbia, Challenger, Discovery, Atlantis, and Endeavour, with alphanumeric designations of OV-102, OV-99, OV-103, OV-104, and OV-105 respectively. OV standing for Orbiter Vehicle. The first four flights of the program were test flights and flew with only two crew members. Much of the concern centered around how the vehicle would handle re-entry into the Earth's atmosphere and how its thermal protection system, PPS, would perform. The fifth mission, STS-5, was the first real operational flight, and it occurred in November 1982.
From orbit, STS-5 launched two satellites. Over its 30-year lifespan, the space shuttle was used in many ways to further our knowledge of space. The first American woman in space, Dr. Sally Ride, was aboard the Challenger for STS-7. STS-9 delivered the first European Space Agency space lab into space. As a cooperative effort with NASA, the European Space Agency developed a modular system called Space Lab that could be installed in a shuttle orbiter's payload bay. Perhaps the most important element of Space Lab was a pressurized module which greatly increased the usable space which astronauts could use once in orbit. Space Lab was used on over 20 space shuttle missions between 1983 and 1998, providing an environment dedicated to scientific research and hands-on experiments. STS-41C placed the Long Duration Exposure Facility, LDEF, into space to conduct experiments. A few years later, the LDEF was retrieved and the many experiments analyzed. On January 28, 1986, less than two minutes after liftoff, the Challenger, on mission STS-51L, exploded. The entire crew of seven died. A leak in one of the solid rocket boosters was the cause. After the Challenger accident, the shuttle program was suspended for over two years. After design changes were made and safety procedures and precautions taken, on September 29, 1988 the space shuttle flights resumed. In April 1990, the shuttle Discovery deployed the Hubble Space Telescope. The Hubble Telescope is operating at over 300 miles above the Earth and is free of any atmospheric interference. Therefore, the objects are seen much more clearly than from ground observations. As of this writing, the telescope has operated for over 30 years and is expected to function into the 2030s. Its long life can be attributed to both the quality of its construction as well as the periodic service calls that have been performed over the years, the final one being in 2009. In 1989, Atlantis, with mission STS-34, placed the Galileo probe into space. Atlantis actually deployed Galileo in Earth orbit, and then a rocket motor attached to the space probe fired to send it on its way to Jupiter. The Galileo probe investigated Jupiter and its moons until 2003. In July 1994, payload specialist Chiaki Mukai became the first Japanese woman to fly in space. She was part of STS-65 that performed more than 80 experiments that delved into life sciences, space biology, human physiology, and radiation biology. In February 1995, Air Force Colonel Eileen Collins became the first female shuttle pilot. Later in 1995, the 100th U.S. Human Space Launch occurred when STS-71 was launched. STS-71 also marked the first U.S. space shuttle and Russian space station Mir docking. In 1996, five space agencies, NASA, European Space Agency, French Space Agency, Canadian Space Agency, and Italian Space Agency, and research scientists from 10 countries worked together on the primary payload for STS-78. More than 40 experiments were conducted on microgravity science, human physiology, and space biology. STS-78 flew a space lab module and was the first to conduct comprehensive sleep studies and task performance in microgravity. In 1998, the ninth and final space shuttle Mir docking took place, and then later in 1998, John Glenn returned to space. John Glenn had been the first American to orbit the Earth in 1962, and after a successful career in the U.S. Senate, he became the oldest human to venture into space when he was part of the crew aboard STS-95. John Glenn was 77 years old when he returned to space. 
In December 1998, the first International Space Station, ISS, flight occurred with STS-88. This was the first of several missions to construct the ISS, which is discussed in greater detail in the next chapter. STS-93 was launched in 1999 and commanded by Air Force Colonel Eileen Collins. This was the first space shuttle mission to be commanded by a woman. She was the first woman pilot and eventually the first woman commander in the shuttle program. In 2001, as part of STS-102, astronauts Susan Helms and Jim Voss conducted the longest spacewalk in history. The spacewalk lasted 8 hours and 56 minutes. Then in 2002, mission specialist Jerry Ross, aboard STS-110, became the first human to fly in space seven times. On February 1, 2003, STS-107 Columbia and its seven-member crew were lost during re-entry over Texas. Damage was sustained during launch, and this created a hole allowing hot gases to melt the wing structure. The resulting investigation and modifications interrupted shuttle flight operations for more than two years. In May 2009, the STS-118 crew included Barbara Morgan, and she became the first teacher to fly a space mission. Morgan had been the backup teacher when the 1986 Challenger disaster occurred. Also in 2009, STS-125 conducted the final servicing mission for the Hubble Space Telescope. Hubble's lifespan was extended to at least 2020, and it is expected to continue functioning for several years beyond. A mission of particular interest to members of Civil Air Patrol was STS-133, piloted by Eric Bowe, a former CAP Spots cadet and current CAP senior member. This was Eric Bowe's second mission aboard a space shuttle. It marked the 36th shuttle mission to the ISS, the 133rd shuttle flight, and the final flight of the Discovery Order. The space shuttle was the workhorse of America's space program for 30 years. It has carried many astronauts to successful missions, and these missions have greatly increased our knowledge of the physiological effects of spaceflight on humans and a better understanding of our planet and the space environment. Manned Spaceflight The Human Adventure Through the Decades Chart The Timeline of Manned Spaceflight 1961-2020 1961-1970 Russia 16 United States 25 plus 13 flights by X-15 pilots who reached the threshold of space, total 41. 1971-1980, Russia 30, U.S. 8, total 38. 1981-1990, Russia 24, U.S. 37, total 61. 1991-2000, Russia 20, U.S. 63, total 83. 2001-2010, Russia 20, U.S. 31, China 3, total 54. 2011 to 2020, Russia 36, US 2, China 3, total 41. Total missions, Russia 146, US 166, China 6, altogether 318. A current picture. As has been discussed, and as the chart above indicates, Russia and the United States have been active in spaceflight programs since the 1960s. Since the inception of the International Space Station program, the two countries have worked side by side achieving major accomplishments in the exploration of space. Many other countries have also been active in space, particularly with the development of the ISS. Countries such as Canada, Japan, and Brazil and many others have contributed to the development of the ISS. But there is another country that hasn't been part of the ISS, 
but is now very active in pursuing its own space program, and that country is China. In 2003, China launched its first manned spacecraft, Shenzhou-5, and then followed that with two more manned space missions in 2005 and 2008. China has also developed a spacecraft docking system. As of 2020, China was reviewing preliminary studies for a crewed lunar landing mission in the 2030s, as well as the possibility of building an outpost near the lunar south pole with international cooperation. So, China is aggressively catching up to Russia and the United States. Meanwhile, Russia's current space priorities include developing new communications, navigation, and remote sensing spacecraft. Russia's current space budget remains unchanged with approximately 50% spent on their manned space program. Russia has indicated that they are considering missions to the Moon and Mars. Russia is also working on new rocket launchers to support their missions. With the ending of the space shuttle program in 2011, NASA gave up the ability of launching astronauts into space. As a result, for nearly 10 years, American astronauts headed to the ISS have had to catch a ride on Russian Soyuz spacecraft at a cost of $90 million a person. In order to extricate itself from its predicament, NASA initiated the commercial crew program to have private American companies design and build spacecraft to its specifications and offer them up for NASA to use to take astronauts to the ISS. The development of the commercial crew spacecraft took longer than expected, which resulted in a 10-year gap in American-launched missions to the ISS. In 2020, the program was finally able to launch an American crew on a test flight to the ISS using a Crew Dragon spacecraft developed by Space Exploration Technologies, Incorporated, SpaceX. The other company selected for commercial crew is Boeing, which suffered two significant setbacks in its test program. There was a parachute failure on its abort test, and its unmanned test flight to the ISS was cut short due to a computer malfunction which prevented rendezvous. Boeing is targeting 2021 for a repeat of its unmanned test flight to be followed by a second test flight with a crew on board. Independent of the commercial crew program, NASA is pressing forward with a revised lunar exploration program. It is using many elements of the cancelled Constellation program, plus some new components. The cancelled Ares 5 launch vehicle has been modified and is now called SLS for Space Launch System. The Orion spacecraft has been retained with minor modifications. A lunar lander is in development but its design has not been finalized, although it was announced in April 2020 that a joint venture between four major aerospace companies consisting of Blue Origin, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and Draper Laboratory would be assigned the project. And a brand new component known as the Lunar Gateway is planned which will act as a small space station in lunar orbit. A new name has been chosen for the program, and it will be known as Artemis. This name was deemed highly appropriate because the Greek name Artemis is the mythological sister of Apollo, the name of America's first lunar landing program. The choice of a female name is further appropriate because it is planned that a female astronaut will be on the first Artemis landing crew. If these plans stay on track, the decade of the 2020s will offer some very exciting events in human space exploration. Chapter 3. Living and Working in Space Learning Outcomes 1. Describe the International Space Station, ISS 2. Explain the differences between Mir and Skylab 3. Describe the significance of Salyut 1 4. Describe the living and working conditions in space 5. Describe some of the different garments that have been used in human spaceflight. 6. Define and give examples of spin-offs from the space program. 7. 
Describe possible future space endeavors. Important terms. Mir, Russia's space station of the 1980s and 90s. Selyut, Russia's first space station. Skylab, first space station of the U.S. International Space Station, ISS. A true international cooperative effort of 15 nations with Russia and the United States being the major contributors. Space stations. The idea of a permanent space station has been with us since the beginning of the space race. The benefit of having a way station en route to the moon or the planets has been recognized for some time. For scientific research and even military reasons, a permanent space station has been considered a necessity. Russia launched the first space station, Salyut 1, in April 1971. Russian astronauts docked and stayed on board for three weeks. Salyut 1 stayed in space for six months, then burned up when it re-entered the Earth's atmosphere. Russia continued to launch several space stations in the Salyut series. Many of the missions resulted in Russian crews staying in space for one to two months. Salyut 6 and 7 both stayed in space about four years. The crew stayed aboard Salyut 7 for a record 234 days. The success of the Salyut series led to the development of the next generation of Russian space station, the Mir. Mir's first element was launched in February 1986. When its assembly was completed, it had nearly four times the pressurized volume as Salyut, allowing for much more scientific equipment and living space. During the 1970s and 1980s, the Soviet Union had clearly jumped ahead of the U.S. in the field of space station development. During that time period, they had launched six separate space stations to America's one, Skylab. NASA had long wanted to assemble a modular space station using the space shuttle's cargo-carrying ability to bring up the modules. America's planned space station, Freedom, was encountering many problems with numerous redesigns and cost overruns. The solution to the problem was to bring the former USSR, now Russia, as a major contributor of hardware. Russia agreed to the proposal and as a result, it discontinued the Mir program and joined the International Space Station program. The first US space station was Skylab. As mentioned earlier, it was launched in May 1973, two years after the first Salyut. Three different crews lived in Skylab. The last crew stayed for 84 days, setting a spaceflight endurance record, which lasted four years until the Soviets broke it in 1978. During their stays, the crews conducted many experiments. They demonstrated that people could live and work in space. No other crews visited Skylab, but it remained in space for six years before re-entering Earth's atmosphere and raining debris down on Australia. No injuries were reported. International Space Station, ISS The ISS is an internationally developed research facility in low Earth orbit. After several years of planning and preparation, the first element of the ISS, the Zarya module was launched by Russia in November of 1998. The very next month, the U.S. carried the Unity module on a space shuttle mission that mated it to Zarya. The third module to launch was another Russian module named Zvezda in July 2000. This module provided all of the necessary elements to provide for crew habitation, such as sleeping quarters, a toilet, kitchen, carbon dioxide scrubbers, dehumidifier, oxygen generators, exercise equipment, plus data, voice, and television communications. The first official expedition crew arrived in November 2000, and the ISS has been continuously occupied ever since. Crew occupancy time on the ISS has varied dramatically. During the decade-long assembly process, space shuttle crews would typically spend only a week or two. The expedition crews, 
that is, the crews that are assigned to operate the station and conduct experiments, run typically six months in duration. One of the main research goals of the ISS is to study the effects of long-duration spaceflight on the human body. In support of this goal, some crews have spent nearly a year on the ISS. It is the largest international scientific project in history, with 15 countries contributing to this massive undertaking. The countries involved are USA, Russia, Japan, Canada, Brazil, and 11 European countries. The purpose of the ISS is to achieve long-term exploration of space and to provide benefits to the people of Earth. Since the first expedition launched in 2000, hundreds of scientific experiments have been conducted on the ISS. Human research, microgravity, life sciences, physical sciences, and astronomy are a few of the fields that have been studied. The ISS is the largest satellite in space and can easily be seen from Earth with the naked eye. It orbits at an altitude that varies from 173 miles, 278 kilometers, to 286 miles, 460 kilometers, at an average speed of 17,200 miles per hour. The ISS constantly loses altitude due to atmospheric drag but is boosted several times a year to regain its higher altitudes. It completes 15.7 orbits in a 24-hour period. You can track the ISS to determine when you can view it as it flies overhead. Go to spotthestation.nasa.gov for sighting opportunities. Living and working on space stations. What is it like inside a space station? Well, first of all, microgravity or near weightlessness exists inside the ISS. We'd have probably all seen pictures of astronauts floating around inside of space stations. This is not really a problem. Astronauts have learned how to cope with near weightlessness. They can hold onto the walls, or they can wear special cleats, or they can even strap themselves in if necessary. The air inside the ISS is a mixture of oxygen and nitrogen at nearly the exact same ratio as on Earth. This works better than breathing pure oxygen. Also, the temperature is regulated so that the astronauts are comfortable in t-shirts and shorts or sport shirts and pants. NASA refers to this condition as a shirt-sleeve environment. On the Skylab, the crews had a dining room, a toilet area, and private sleeping compartments. The astronauts could eat either hot or cold food. They would place their feet and legs in restraints and could actually sit and eat. As for sleeping, the astronauts had sleeping bags placed vertically on the walls. They could fasten themselves in and go to sleep. Living on the International Space Station, ISS, is similar to the previous space stations, but also different. First of all, the food has gotten better. Astronauts pick their menus months ahead of time, knowing how important their diet is in space. The ISA has a microwave and a refrigerator, so even though dehydrated food is still used, so is frozen food. Drinks and soups are still sipped through plastic bags and straws. Solid food is eaten with a knife and fork on trays with magnets to prevent them from floating away. Working is also a part of life inside a space station. Astronauts have their housekeeping chores to perform. Plus, they have their research and experiments to conduct. Physical activities are a normal daily occurrence on the flights, so there is plenty to keep the astronauts busy. Near weightlessness causes loss of bone and muscle mass, so exercise is very important to astronauts. To prevent this muscle loss, astronauts exercise daily. The ISS is equipped with two treadmills and a stationary bicycle. Astronauts must strap themselves to the equipment to keep from floating away. After spending months in a weightless environment, it can take several days before astronauts can walk without assistance after returning to Earth. 
Loss of bone mass can take the body years to fully regenerate. Sleeping in the ISS is similar to earlier space stations. Astronauts still sleep in wall-mounted sleeping bags that zip them into the bag. They also have arm restraints to keep their arms from floating above their head while they sleep. Astronauts spend most of their waking moments conducting scientific experiments and observations. They are also involved in maintaining the ISS and repairing equipment as necessary. Generally, the astronauts work for 10 hours during the weekdays and 5 hours on Saturday. The rest of the time they either relax or do catch-up activities. The ISS doesn't have a shower, so the astronauts take sponge baths or clean themselves with washcloths and wet towels. Each astronaut has a personal hygiene kit with toothbrush, toothpaste, and shampoo. Extravehicular activities, EVA. These last few paragraphs have discussed life inside a space station. Now, let's spend a little time discussing life outside the space station. Many times a space shuttle mission would include repairing a satellite. This involved going outside of the vehicle. The general term used for going outside of a space vehicle is extravehicular activity. Russian Alexei Leonov accomplished the first EVA or spacewalk in March 1965. He was outside of his spacecraft for 12 minutes. Less than three months later, Ed White was the first American to walk in space. This occurred in June 1965. White was outside the spacecraft for 20 minutes traveling at 17,500 miles per hour. Since 1965, there have been many EVAs in space. Several EVAs have been performed on the Hubble Space Telescope. These successful repairs and upgrades have extended the usable life of the telescope by many years. Spacewalks have become a very routine part of most of the ISS missions. Since Alexei Leonov performed the world's first spacewalk in 1965, there have been over 700 performed, including dozens on the surface of the moon. The longest two occurred in 2001 when astronauts Susan Helms and Jim Voss each performed a spacewalk that lasted 8 hours and 56 minutes. They were part of the STS-102 Discovery crew, and despite the numerous spacewalks that have occurred since 2001, this record still stands. Spacesuits Obviously, a subject that comes to mind when talking about spacewalks is spacesuits. Spacesuits have changed a lot over the years. Let's take a look at the evolution of the spacesuit. The main purpose of a spacesuit is to maintain a survivable pressure for a human in the vacuum of space. It is a generally understood concept that as altitude increases, atmospheric pressure decreases. Any vehicle that travels into space has to deal with this reality. There are two specific ways in which this problem is addressed, pressurize the cabin which the crew member occupies or pressurize a suit which the crew member wears or both. All spacecraft ever designed to carry a crew have had pressurized cabins. Not all astronaut crews have flown in pressurized suits, however. Some early Soviet missions and the 5th through the 25th space shuttle missions did not fly with crew pressure suits. Additionally, if a crew member exits the spacecraft during a mission, he or she needs protection not only from the vacuum of space, but also from the extreme hot and cold of the space environment, the extremely bright sunlight, radiation, as well as meteoroid, and micrometeoroid impact. During the Mercury program, no astronaut ever left the pressurized spacecraft. Therefore, the suits worn by those astronauts simply served as a backup in case cabin pressurization failed. The Gemini program presented two new challenges, long-duration missions, up to 14 days, and spacewalks. The 14-day mission had the crew use specially designed suits that could be removed during flight to provide some additional comfort. 
On missions that included spacewalks, there were design provisions to protect the astronaut during the time he was outside the spacecraft. For the Apollo program, walking on the moon required several additional areas of consideration that previous astronaut crews did not have to worry about. The Apollo moon suit was more advanced than any previous suit design. The astronauts carried their oxygen on their backs as opposed to an umbilical connected to the spacecraft, and their communication system was much more sophisticated, allowing the two moonwalkers to talk to each other, mission control in Houston, as well as the third astronaut orbiting the moon in the command module. The suit also had a supply of drinking water and a collection point for going to the bathroom. These suits consisted of several layers of material, which protected the astronauts during EVAs. For instance, the Apollo suit protected the astronaut in temperatures of over 250 degrees Fahrenheit, while also protecting against harmful radiation. All suits from Mercury through Apollo were made specifically for the individual astronaut. That changed with the space shuttle. The shuttle suit, called the Extravehicular Mobility Unit, EMU, was much easier to put on and came in various sizes rather than being custom-made. The shuttle suit was made of several parts that could accommodate a man or a woman. The main parts consisted of the helmet, a rigid upper torso with flexible sleeves for the arms, gloves were attached separately, and a soft lower torso which included legs and boots. It was also reusable and expected to last for 15 years. Two versions of the EMU were produced during the shuttle program. The first version was used through 2002, and a more improved version was used from 1998 through the conclusion of the shuttle program and continues to be used on the ISS. In 1984, the astronauts used the Manned Maneuvering Unit, MNU, for the first time. This unit fit on the back of the astronaut's spacesuit and allowed him or her to move around without being tied to the spacecraft. The MNU was used on three missions, all of which occurred in 1984. After the Challenger tragedy in 1986, the use of the MNU was discontinued due to safety concerns. A simplified version of the MNU, the Simplified Aid for EVA Rescue, or SAFER, was first flight tested during STS-64 in 1994. It was developed for use in case a tethered astronaut performing as EVA became untethered. The space shuttle suits described were only used for performing EVAs. A different type of suit was used for launch and landing. On the first four test flights, STS-1 through 4, the two crew members wore pressure suits based on the suits worn by SR-71 crew members. These suits were designed to provide for the survival of a supersonic ejection on either launch or landing. When the test flights concluded, the seat ejection system was removed and all crew members wore unpressurized flight suits. After the 1986 Challenger disaster, NASA reinstituted the use of pressure suits for launch and landing. An improved suit was introduced in 1994 and was used through the conclusion of the Space Shuttle program in 2011. As you can see, space suits have come a long way. The improvements in the suits have allowed the astronauts to do much more in space and do it more efficiently. To see NASA ideas for future spacesuits, Google future spacesuits on the internet. You will be amazed at the future technology planned to protect mankind in space. The future in space. Due to our enduring fascination with space, indications are that space travel will continue into the foreseeable future. We'd have come a long way since Russia launched Sputnik in 1957, and with each additional mission, we seem to learn more and more. In many people's minds, this increased knowledge justifies a persistent, progressive space program. For the 30-year period from 1981 to 2011, the United States Space Transportation System, STS, 
had been the primary mode of space transportation. As discussed earlier, NASA is now overseeing the development of the commercial crew program for transport to the ISS, relieving our dependence on Russia for the past decade. The Artemis program is targeting a return to the moon within the next few years. Looking farther ahead to the mid-21st century, we could see something like the space liner. The concept would involve a completely reusable vehicle capable of vertical liftoff and horizontal landing. Space liner could take 50 passengers to 47 to 50 miles above Earth and then glide back at hypersonic speeds of more than 15,000 miles per hour. This would enable passengers to fly from Europe to Australia in 90 minutes. If development moves forward, Space Liner could be flying passengers by 2050. This project hopes to revive a decades-old idea of using spaceflight to greatly reduce air travel times. Currently, atmospheric flight is limited to just under 7,000 miles per hour, and commercial passenger flights never exceeded Mach 2 on the Concorde SSD, a speed capability of Mach 20, is what makes the Space Liner so appealing. A novel possibility, and one that is growing in popularity, is commercial recreational space travel. Whereas Space Liner's purpose is commercial passenger transport, recreational space travel's sole purpose is to give people the thrill and excitement of a trip into space. Two companies, Virgin Galactic and Scaled Composites, are working together to make commercial space travel a reality. Scaled Composites is the company that in 2004 won the $10 million XPRIZE for flying to an altitude of 62 miles or 100 kilometers, returning safely to Earth and then repeating the flight within two weeks. The spacecraft was called Spaceship One. Now, the two companies are building a spacecraft called Spaceship Two that will take passengers into space. Initially, tickets were offered for $200,000. However, as of 2020, the price had gone up to $250,000 per passenger. The spacecraft is designed to seat six passengers and two pilots and fly to about 68 miles or 110 kilometers. The passengers will experience a two-and-a-half-hour flight with several minutes of weightlessness. Already, people from all over the world are placing orders for the spaceship too. The space age officially began on October 4, 1957 with the launch of Sputnik. In a very real sense, the world has now entered a new age of space when all of the recent developments are taken into consideration. One of the main driving factors of this new space age is the entrepreneurial motivation to advance space technology by individuals of great personal wealth. Three major players in this new age, SpaceX, Blue Origin, and Virgin Galactic, are all headed by multi-billionaires who are investing significant portions of their personal fortunes to build and fly their own launch vehicles and spacecraft. For decades, the only two players in that arena were NASA and its Soviet, now Russian, equivalent. SpaceX is developing the Starship spacecraft and Falcon Super Heavy Booster for Mars missions with a crew capacity of up to 100. Blue Origin is developing a new family of rockets called New Shepard and New Glenn, named after the American astronauts. New Shepard will take paying passengers on suborbital flights, and New Glenn is a heavy lift launcher that will take payloads weighing nearly 100,000 pounds to low Earth orbit. Blue Origin has established such a good reputation that it already has five paying customers for multiple flights before it even launched its first New Glenn rocket. Virgin Galactic is planning a Spaceship 3 which will have orbital capability. Add to this scores of other smaller companies that are creating innovations that could see widespread use in spaceflight. Just one example is Relativity Space, which plans to 3D print an entire rocket and launch it from Cape Canaveral in 2021.
The first space age was marked by a single event that occurred on a specific date. History may record the new space age as a series of events that began somewhere in the second decade of the 21st century when entrepreneurial innovation began to transform the science fictional concepts of recreational spaceflight, hypersonic passenger travel, and hundreds of people traveling to Mars into reality. The new space age is here.